It's time now for the complete story with Dick Bott, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here is Dick Bott with today's complete story. Uh, you know, uh, Rich, uh, as, as time moves forward, why, um, we seem to be getting more and more conflicted. Uh, here we have Donald Trump, of course, as the president. Now, the point is, is it that he is the president that the media seem to just hate him and oppose him on every point? Or is it what he promised the people that he would do if he became president, such as uh, where pro-life is concerned, protect the life of the innocent unborn child? He said he would promise that. Certainly the other candidate didn't. As a matter of fact, <laughs> yeah. And, and then that he would uh, make sure that kids got good schools. And he said that it is really a big shame. As a matter of fact, he put it more bluntly than that, that our inner city schools are such a shambles and, uh, and, and that the children need and deserve to have a good education in all of the schools where they attend. So that's a good thing, I suppose. And then he said, for goodness sakes, manufacturing jobs have just evaporated here in America. And he said, I'm going to bring them back because people do need jobs, but they need to be ready for the jobs. So all of these things, uh, and then put America first. Now, isn't that a novel idea? And that he would appoint pro-life justices to the Supreme Court. And of course, and, and, and so you find then there's tremendous turmoil, tremendous, unbelievable uh, pushback w- w- and opposition. What would you call it? Hatred? I mean, man alive, that's a strong word. Vitriol, but, yeah. Uh, vitriol or something, that's a little more fancy word. But uh, that seems to be the, uh, the, the battle, folks, is between what is good for people and uh, maybe the opposite. I, I, I tell you this, the life of an unborn child, that's a child. Now, I'll tell you this, if, if, if that child is coming into a world where there's difficulty and there isn't much provision for the child or care or something like that, then you have a society, for goodness sakes, that finds a solution to that. Uh, and, and the solution many times, you know, is found in many avenues of society, and it all comes back, listen, folks, to the Bible. Now, God's Word lays it out. How should we then live? Francis Schaeffer, Sr., by the way, he wrote a book entitled that, How Should We Then Live? How should we then live as a society with order? And, uh, well, man alive, I could go on the next 20 minutes talking about order, a society with order. That's what you have even in the seasons of the year. You have order. And all of that, other, other than that, Rich, what do you have? Chaos. So let's get back to the Bible because it's all laid out in God's Word, and that is the one book that mankind has spent all of these years trying to resist, trying to avoid, trying to talk around, trying to find an excuse to play games with it, and everything else, but it still comes back to, is the Bible believable, isn't it? It is, Dad, and uh, as we know, the wise man built his house upon the rock, and then when the rains came and the storms came and the floods came, it stood because its foundation was sure. Oh, wait a minute now, and the foolish man built his house upon the sand, the sinking, shifting sands of time, except you and I both heard a sermon 
years and years ago, and a question then was raised, well, why did the foolish man do that? Listen to me, folks. Why did he build his house on sand? Because he on spent- shifting sand. And I'll tell you, the answer just really struck me. He didn't, he thought it was rock. He thought it was truth. He thought it was right. He really thought it would be a good place to build his house. And that's what, that's what history has shown. That's why he was called a foolish man. And that's out of the Bible, too, isn't it? So how do we know whether it's rock or sand? You go back to the book. That's, you go back to the book. Now, one the other key. thing before we get into our program, there was a gentleman that came up to me in church a few weeks ago. And he had been attending a church where they were kind of playing fast and loose with this homosexual business and, and gay marriage, and they weren't sure how they believed. They weren't sure what they should take a position they should take on it, and on and on and on. And so this fellow went to the pastor and, and uh, said, well, look, this is what the Bible says. So the pastor said, well, you think the Bible, everything in the Bible is true? Do you think everything in the Bible is true? Well, he said, yes. Oh, no, no, no. The pastor said, oh, no, 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 we don't. We don't think that anymore. The pastor said, as a matter of fact, I've written a book on that. I've written a book on that and so on and so forth. Well, that's when this gentleman, apparently he was planted pretty deeply in his own faith in God's word. So that's when he, that's when he left. That's when he left that church and came over to the church where we attend, you see, because that is the center ground. Now, I don't know what church you attend, but if the Bible isn't taken seriously— and if it cannot inform you how to live as a family, how to live as a husband and wife, how to live in a society, how to want order instead of disorder, uh, well, then, uh, then, then, of course, this is the way the world is going. How to build your life on a sure foundation. Now, let's go back for this chapter of the complete story because I heard my good friend John MacArthur uh, oh, man, and he just nailed it. And, you know, you go back through John MacArthur's whole life, even his father's life. His name was Jack MacArthur, and he had a church there in Los Angeles. What a godly man. Some of my best friends were, were became Christians at Jack MacArthur's church as children. As children, that's another story too, isn't it? As children, suffer the little children to come unto me. Jesus said that. So anyway, John MacArthur, and people know, uh, the Grace to You broadcast has been on Bot Radio Network since it started, since Grace to You broadcast. How many years ago would that have been? Oh, oh my goodness, a long, long time ago. long time ago. 30 years or more, more than 30 years. But when John MacArthur preaches, he really takes the Bible seriously. And so he's touching on that right now. And when I heard this one sermon, I talked to him on the telephone, and I said, John, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for nailing it. Now, here is the sermon that I really, I really benefited from, and I hope you do also. There are only two options when it comes to origins. The two options are there is a Creator God or there is not. Those are the only two options. There either is a Creator God or there is not. If there is not, then everything is an impossible implausible, irrational result of chance. If, on the other hand, there is a 
creative intelligence. If there is a Creator God, then creation is understandable. It is possible, it is plausible, it is rational. In Hebrews chapter 1, going to the other end of the Bible, we read that God who spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Hebrews 1 says that God made the world. Psalm 19 says He made the universe. Hebrews 1 says He made the world. The only way we're going to know that is if God tells us that. We are natural. God is supernatural. The natural cannot comprehend the supernatural, so on our own we can't find God. We can't discover God. We're locked in a time-space world. We can't crawl outside of it into eternity and comprehend what is incomprehensible. The only things we know about God are those things which He has told us, and that's why He gave us the Bible. All Scripture is inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. God breathed it out so that it is His Word. Second Peter 1, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The only source of knowledge we have about God is the Bible, and the external evidence of God in creation. We can know about God by creation. We cannot know God except through Scripture. When God began the Bible as His self-revelation, He began at the beginning. He began with an account of origins. He began by telling how He created the universe. Verse 1 of Genesis 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then He goes on into chapter 2 and verse 4 with a description of precisely and exactly how He created the universe. Now this is where Genesis begins, but it doesn't end there. Genesis is a book of origins. To show you how important Genesis is, let me tell you the range of origins that are found in the revelation of this one book. Now the word Genesis, by the way, means origins beginnings. And in the book of Genesis, you find many beginnings, many origins. First of all, and we just noted that, you find the origin of the universe. Genesis 1-1 is unique in all literature, all science, and all philosophy. Every other system of cosmogony explaining the universe, whether in ancient religious myths or modern scientific models, starts with eternal matter or eternal energy in some form. Only the book of Genesis starts with eternal God. Genesis is then the book of the origin of the universe. Secondly, in Genesis we find the origin of order and complexity. Man's uh, universal observation of his world is that it is, it is an orderly world. It functions on fixed rules and it is profoundly complex. Order and complexity never arise spontaneously. They are always generated by a prior cause programmed to produce order and complexity simultaneously. And in the book of Genesis, we meet God 
who programmed order and complexity into His universe. We also find in Genesis the origin of the solar system. In the midst of this vast, limitless universe, God created a solar system, the earth as well as the sun and moon, the planets, all the stars of heaven were brought into existence by the Creator, and we're told that He created them all. Fourthly, the book of Genesis tells us about the origin of the atmosphere and the hydrosphere. The earth is uniquely equipped with a great body of liquid water and an extensive blanket of oxygen-nitrogen-gaseous mixture, both of which are necessary for life and are accounted for only by special creation by God to provide an environment for human life. We also find in Genesis the origin of life, the marvels of the reproductive process, the almost Infinite complexity programmed into the genetic system of plants and animals are inexplicable apart from special creation by a great, supernatural, powerful intelligence. And sixthly, and certainly centrally, Genesis tells us about the origin of man. Man is the most highly organized and complex entity in the universe. Man is the supreme illustration of order and complexity. He possesses not only innumerable intricate physical chemical structures and the marvelous capacities of life and reproduction, but beyond that sort of physical part of man, there is a nature which can contemplate abstract entities of beauty and love and worship and which is capable of understanding and thinking about its own meaning. It is self-awareness that singularly identifies and separates man from the rest of the created order. And the true record of man's creation is given only in Genesis. In Genesis, you also find the origin of marriage, the remarkable universal and stable institution of marriage and the home, a monogamous, patriarchal social culture is defined and described in Genesis as having been ordained by the Creator, and polygamy and infanticide and matriarchy and promiscuity and divorce and abortion and homosexuality and all other corruptions developed later after the fall, corrupting God's initial order. You also find in the book of Genesis the origin of evil. The origin of physical and moral evil in the universe is explained in Genesis as a, a kind of temporary intrusion into God's perfect world, allowed by God as a concession to the principle of human freedom and responsibility, and also to manifest Himself as Redeemer of sinners as well as Creator. You find number nine in the book of Genesis the origin of judgment on evil. All the forms of God's wrath are set in motion and illustrated in Genesis. Also number 10 in the book of Genesis, you find the origin of salvation by grace through God's mercy and a substitute. That's all in Genesis, and it starts to show as God is merciful to Adam and Eve and doesn't kill them even though they deserve to die for their sin. And then God develops a, a system of animal sacrifice which pictures a substitute who will take the place of sinners, which is an act of mercy and grace on God's part. The plan of redemption leading to Christ is even referred to when the book of Genesis talks about the seed of the woman that being the seed planted by God in Mary, the Messiah, the Savior. It is in the book of Genesis that we find the origin of language. You know, one of the things that evolutionists gag on all the time is how you go from 
apes to man, not just making some physical transition, but developing language. How you go from grunting and making unintelligible noises to human speech. Newsweek was trying to present an article to answer that, and it was just bizarre and pointless and d unbelievable. The gulf between the, the mindless, instinctive chattering of animals and the intelligent, abstract, symbolic communication of man is absolutely and completely unbridgeable by any evolutionary process. In the book of Genesis, not only accounts for the origin of language in general, that is, God is a communicating God and He created someone in His own image who thereby could communicate, but Genesis also tells us not only how man was given by God the ability to communicate, but how so many languages occurred from the judgment of God at the Tower of Babel. That's in Genesis 2. You find in Genesis number 12 the origin of government the development of organized systems of human government for the maintenance of orderly social structures through systems of law and punishment. You find in Genesis the origin of culture. You find here such things as urbanization, the development of metallurgy, music, agriculture, animal husbandry, writing, education, navigation, textiles and ceramics. All of that starts in the book of Genesis. You find in Genesis the origin of nations. And that is related, of course, again to the Tower of Babel as God takes one race and scatters them all over the world. That is the only source you'll ever find of how we have so many different people scattered all over the earth with different languages and cultures. You find in the book of Genesis the origin of religion. Both the true religion and false religions appear, first of all, in the book of Genesis, organized systems of worship and conduct. The origin of uh, man's unique characteristic of man's own consciousness and his ability to comprehend a God and to structure a system of response to the God he believes exists, that all appears in Genesis. You find also significantly, number 16 in my list, the origin of the chosen people Israel who were the conduit for God's revelation to all of the world. It was Israel that was God's people through whom He gave His revelation and through whom His saving covenant came in Genesis 12 to Abraham. Now when you talk about origins, you're going to have to go back to Genesis. All you can know about how God created is what He said. It's all you can know. And if you don't believe what He said about creation, what kind of precedent have you established for the rest of the Bible? And what about the end? Do you know how all a redemptive history ends? Do you know how the whole story of humanity ends? It ends, according to Second uh, Peter, when the Lord uncreates the universe, I like to use that word, and immediately after that it says in Revelation that He creates a what? New heaven and a new earth. Let me ask you this, do you believe He can do that? Or is that going to be another umpteen billion years of evolutionary process to get the new heaven and the new earth cranked up? Is it going to take billions of years to evolve the new heaven and the new earth? Or do you really believe God might be able to do that just by fiat, just by making the statement and calling it into existence? If you believe that, then what's your problem in Genesis? If God can wipe the entire universe out in a split second, if He can dissolve the whole thing, if He can send it reeling in the time of the tribulation and refurbish it during the time of the kingdom and then totally uncreate it at the end of the thousand years, if He can do all of that, then I don't know why you have a problem with Him creating it all in six days. 
It is not necessary to reject a six-day creation. It is not necessary. We have yielded up territory to evolution without cause. Science knows nothing. Science proves nothing that contradicts a six-day creation. Nothing. In fact, science, as it keeps advancing, makes its own claims to evolution ridiculous, more ridiculous all the time. You know, and having a perspective on this is very important. We've caved in to the scientists too long, and it's time to stop. If you want to do some reading on this, get Philip Johnson's book, Darwin on Trial. It just devastates the scientific perspectives. Christian people literally accepting the scientific descriptions of origins that come out of an evolutionary bias as if somehow they've been proven and somehow the Bible is going to have to give at that point because a six-day creation is not scientifically possible. That is just not true. And most Christian leaders and most Christian educators have allowed the teachings of evolution to one degree or another to be added to the Bible. They sort of stuff evolution in between the verses in Genesis. Most Christian leaders have accepted the fact that the uh, universe is billions of years old. Yet clearly from the words of Scripture, God created the universe in six literal days. And Christian leaders can't deny that that's what it says, because that's what it says. You can translate it any way you want, it all comes out, the word yom means day, and you have six of them. But they believe somehow that scientists have proved that the uh, age of the earth must be billions and billions and billions of years old. So they believe we've got to go back to Genesis and fix it. And in so doing, they have allowed the authority of the Bible to be undermined, right? Serious stuff. If the words of the Bible mean six days, and you conclude, but so-called science says that's not true, then science is right and the Bible is wrong. Now if you can't trust the words of Genesis, when do you start trusting the Bible? That's a sad indictment of the church, isn't it? And the humanists even use the compromising Christian leaders to further their cause to undermine Christianity. And what we have is a kind of Christianity today that loses its absolutes in Genesis 1. Now, that's sad. Christian leaders uh, might not sign on, of course, to uh, humanistic evolution. They would say, yes, there's a God, and somehow God's involved in the evolutionary process. That's called theistic evolution, sometimes called progressive creationism, a term developed by Russell Mixter. But they would say, there is a God, and God is in, sort of injects Himself at points at theistic evolution, says God launched it and started it. Progressive creationism says He jumps in uh, along the way. But it still took millions and millions and billions of years for it to happen. These people call themselves believers in God. They probably would uh, say they believe the Scripture, but they don't want to allow for a six-day creation. This poses immense problems, immense problems. Here's one of them. I'm not going to give you all, but here's one. just strikes me as a serious problem. If man is created at the end of the evolutionary process, whether it's a naturalistic evolutionary process or it's a theistic evolutionary process launched by God, uh, which some Christians think they have to affirm in, in order to uh, pay homage to science, or if it's a progressive creationist view where God injects Himself along the way, the problem you've got is evolution is a process, listen carefully, evolution is a process by nature of 
death. It's a process known as the survival of what? The fittest. It's a process of violence. It's a process of uh, bloodshed. It's a process of suffering. It's a process of disease. It's a process of death as the order rises higher and higher and higher until it gets to man. Now, here's a serious problem. You don't have man until billions of years, and when man appears, he is perfect and he is sinless, and there's no such thing as death. Death doesn't even come into the picture until man does what? Sins. How can you have death before the fall? You don't even have a cursed earth. The whole, the whole of the Genesis record is stood on its head. If, if there's been all kinds of death in this billions of years of evolutionary processing, then what did sin do to the world that hadn't already been done? And how could God, who looked over this whole evolutionary deal when it finally reached its completion in man and said He saw it and He looked at it and He said, it is, it is good. How could God say that? You see, then, then the sin of Adam and the curse of death is meaningless because there's been death for millennia and for billions of years. It just convolutes all of the biblical record. Because what you have in Genesis is a perfect world until Adam is confronted by the serpent and falls into sin and God curses the universe and then comes death and disease and suffering and violence and bloodshed and not before. Evolution makes no sense in that perspective. See, we stand on the Scripture, but the problem is we don't want to stand on the Scripture in Genesis. So we equivocate on whether or not the Bible is an authority at all. What do you think the watching world thinks about our commitment to Scripture? Pretty selective, isn't it? Oh, Rich, uh, there you go. There you go. Now, I want to, I want to say to everyone listening, uh, have the schools, the, the, the grade schools and the junior high and, and the high schools and then on into the colleges, have they shaped your theology or lack of it? Have they shaped your faith in Christ, your acknowledgement of God or lack of it? Uh, or has the perusal and the study of God's Word? Because I'll tell you this, there's no sense, there's no rhyme, no reason for even churches to start doubting whether or not the Bible is believable. And you see, if if you cannot satisfy that in your church, you can go to church and have a great YMCA. You can have potluck dinners, and you can have a lot of good times. You can find fellowship. You can do community service. You can do everything under the sun. But in the end, you have missed the beginning. Isn't that true, Rich? It is, and I love what he said there. If you if you can't have a confidence in the six day creation, he says you end up with a kind of Christianity that loses its absolutes in Genesis one, and and this was really compelling to me. I said if you believe that God can honor His word there and uh, create a new heaven and a new earth in a moment of time. Why do you think that he could not create the original heaven and earth in a moment of time? Yeah. Uh, that's that's really an interesting interesting contrast.
contradiction. Let me just say, that, go ahead, Rich. Oh, and I love Ken Ham and uh, his Answers in Genesis ministry, you know, the Creation Museum up there near Cincinnati. I've been well, twice. See, when Ken I, Ham says one race, one blood, now how can that be? One race, one blood. Then how do you account for the difference in people groups? How do you account for the difference in 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 the in the degree of tan that various people yeah, have? Yeah, yeah, of course. See, he, well, I'll tell you what. It's in the Bible, and, it and Ken Ham takes you through it step by step, scientifically, and in the Bible, and it's fantastic. And one race, it, one blood. And listen, of course, the Bible if, is believable. Yeah, you better believe it because if if people would have believed it and stayed with it. Rather than get fancy and start tap dancing all over the place, we wouldn't have had the racial problems that we had in the very beginning, and we wouldn't have the racial problems that we have now. Right. We are one race, one blood. Those who know the Lord and trust him as their Savior and absolutely take the word seriously in raising children, getting married for heaven's sake, right, right. having an orderly society— uh, than what we have Well, now. I love this message by John MacArthur because the Bible is believable. And what I started to say is when I went to the Creation Museum, it was, yes, it was about creation, but it was even more about biblical apologetics and that you can know that the Bible is true. Maybe that's a good thing to ask your pastor. Is the Bible true? Is the Bible true? Because when Ken Ham told me that if the people cannot get the first chapter of Genesis or the first two or three chapters, whatever it was, why, if you can't understand that and you cannot accept that, you're going to have trouble with the Bible all the way through. We've got to get out of here, Rich. This is Dick Bott with his chapter, The Complete Story, as a public service, by the way. See you later. <laughs> 